coming up on Art Palace. To me, October is like the best month for meaning. Death, for a lot of people, is what makes us appreciate what we have. Welcome to a special Halloween edition of Art Palace produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Irig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Cole Imperi, dual certified thanatologist and public health educator. For the past few Octobers, we focused on the museum's ghost stories, so you should go back and listen to those episodes if you've not heard them. This year, I wanted to do something a little different, so I invited Cole to look at some more morbid artwork with me. Well, thank you for joining me again, Cole. And uh, for those of you who haven't heard our last episode together, I, we did. I'm pretty. I, I actually should have done my research and listened, but I can't remember <laughs> whether I said it there that uh, you should come back for this, or if we just talked about it off mic, but uh, since it is the spooky season, uh, <laughs> um, and you uh, have a, a spooky uh, career. <laughs> yeah, I do. And let me tell you what, if there's ever a month in the year when people want to talk to a thanatologist, it's, it's October. You're like, yeah, you're just like, your calendar's just like full yes. all, all October. Yes. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So let people know just uh, what a thanatologist is. So I'm a thanatologist. That is the study of death and dying. Um, and I am very well versed in all aspects of death and dying and how it intersects with so many aspects of our life, including art, which we're going to talk about today. And so last time we talked about a couple of artworks that kind of uh, touched on death and dying. We looked at uh, the memorial to Elizabeth Boot Duvenek, and we also looked at our mummy. So Mm -hmm. if you want to go back, those are great pieces uh, that we talked about in that one. So, uh, uh, this time I thought we'd look at some other works in the collection. Actually, I remember you said last time you're like, I thought we'd be looking at paintings, so I thought we'd start. <laughs> yeah. I thought we'd start with a painting, um, and we're looking at a painting by uh, Bernardino Mai. Um, I hope I'm saying that right. I'm not Italian. Yeah, and I tried to look up online how to say it because <laughs> being a Kentuckian, right. sometimes I'm not great at delicate pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me neither. My instincts would be my or may, but yeah. I don't know. Hey, Italians, come correct me. Yes. Um, so this is Alex. Oh, you know what? I have an Italian last name. I was this thinking is that. Shameful. So but I just married it, okay? I just married it. Okay, yeah, okay, that's fair. I was thinking, I was like, wait, does this isn't it very yeah. Italian? <laughs> um, so we're looking at Alexander uh, the Great and the Fates. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a very large painting. Might be the first thing you notice when you walk into this room. Yeah, I'm struck by how actually big it is in real life. Yeah. Um, I don't know what I was thinking, but because I 
peeked at the image before coming in. Uh-huh. And I, you know, it doesn't, when you're looking at it online, you, you have, have no, no idea yeah. for the scale and just the impact of sitting in front of something where actually the people are larger than life. Yeah. In real life, really. All the people in the foreground are definitely about life size or maybe a little bit bigger. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, and there's a lot of people here, so that makes for a big painting. Yes. <laughs> and there's like a lot of pandemonium, I would say, going on when you look at this. We've got someone whose feet are on an angel on the ground. <laughs> um, there's like a femur bone that someone's yeah. foot is stepping on. We got a baby. Just over here, uh-huh. um, there's swords. There's an angel coming down from the sky. So you've got angels above and below, which is, I think, very much a metaphor for um, the typical presentation of death in across time and culture. Most religious traditions teach that what happens after you die is a reward punishment system. So you'll either be rewarded with heaven, and we have this angel above, or you'll be punished, and uh. the angels below. Well, um, this is actually, so the, the one above, so uh, we, they're not actually angels in the, maybe the traditional sense of, I mean, what are they? Well, okay. So the one above represents fame. Oh. And so this is like, fame is sort of saying, you know, like, don't worry, your story is going to live on. Interesting. Basically, it's like a comfort to Alexander. Okay. And then below, I believe, is Kronos, okay. uh, who represents time. Okay. So you see the hourglass there that's, like, like, kind of broken. I see. Yeah. So they are, while they look like very much what we expect, like the traditional sort of rendered in the kind of angelly way and that they got wings, yeah. um, they, are, they are actually more specific kind of characters in this story. So... Each of these people in this painting is representative of of a real a concept. Or yeah, so the three ladies over here are the three are the fates. fates. Yes, yep, know about and them. And you have uh, now. I can't. I'm always getting their names mixed up. Their names are well. There's the Roman and then the Greek. Oh, okay, okay? right, right. So I believe the Greek. They're Clotho. Lachesis, yeah. L a c h e s i s, and Atropos. Yes, and um, the three of them represent. What is it like? Life itself, the length of your life, and your death. Right. So the one over here who's kind of the oldest and gnarliest looking one, she's got the big shears, and she is the one who cuts cuts your life thread. The thread, yes. Yeah, so you can see over here the, the, the... other fates are sort of beginning taking the thread, um, which I think that's why it's coming out of this baby's hand is sort yep. of sort of representing the beginning of Earth. life. Yeah. And then the life is being kind of woven. It's sort of the, the, your narrative of your story as being this like, that's going on. I think it's called a nitty naughty huh. is that thing that you go back and forth, uh, with the yarn. I could oh. be crazy. Okay. Um, and then she is sort of the person who decides where, you die on that thread. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see Alexander here is like fighting it. Yep. And then that's what the fame from above is sort of the comfort. Yeah. Um, Fame's so. like, you know what? You're going to die, but don't worry. We're going to talk about you after you're dead. Right. <laughs> like, You'll be, be comforted by that. <laughs> <laughs> and also the red fabric. Mm-hmm. There's like this long scarf situation that is just wrapping. That's got to be symbolic of something, right? I don't know. I mean. Because a lot of times these, the red lines like that they represent like blood, like right, being right. human, being mortal. Yeah, I'm not sure what it represents or if it, if it has, it might very well may have. I mean, one of the things it definitely does is it, it pulls your eyes right into him. Yeah, it's him, so, so striking. It's the only 
place in the entire painting that there's this bold, yeah. bright red. Right. Compositionally, what it does is it totally pulls you right to Alexander and it kind of sets up like, here's the star yes. <laughs> of the painting. Um, yeah, because I mean, if you can imagine it without him, you it would suddenly become, you know, probably you would think more about the fate in the middle, really. Yes. Yep. If you didn't have that big red cloth, it would just become more about her show yep. <laughs> necessarily than his show. Yep. And what's interesting is the fates here, they're, they're always women, right? Mm-hmm. Represented traditionally. They look like mortals. They don't have wings. Right. Yeah, that's true. Um, And in my research, just from digging into this, I read about how there's this, in both the Roman and the Greek tradition, that you can sometimes bargain with them to give your, buy yourself a little bit more time. Yeah. And that is such a mirror for how many of us deal with death in our own lives. Um, have you heard of magical thinking? Yeah, sure. And, you know, we always hope for a miracle and we always hope for like, well, maybe I'll be the exception or like right. maybe this one time. And it was, so it's interesting that this is a, a concept that humanity has long held right. near and dear. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I keep thinking too about, um, the, uh, the kind of when you brought kind of referred to them as angels, cause it's really interesting to look at this and think about that. Um, we are looking at a painting that was made, you know, probably by practicing Christians. 1667. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But is referencing, you know, Greek gods and yeah. things like that, which is pretty normal, you know, especially when you, you look at like the Renaissance and, and later and, and they use these classical themes, yes. even though it is not like still the religion of the time. Yes. So I think that sort of representation of, of angels and things that sort of the way that things have, uh, deities have been shown in other artworks, uh, in Christian artworks is kind of creeping back into this sort of non-Christian representation. Yeah. Now with the three fates, so from, from my understanding, the Roman perspective on the three fates wasn't necessarily negative, Mm. but the, um, or no, I think I switched that. Yeah. No, no, the Greeks, they were kind of a fan and oh, okay. it wasn't, it wasn't negative, but the Romans, hmm. the Roman sort of perspective on the three fates was not necessarily positive. It was more negative. Interesting. And they were called Nona, Decuma, and Morta. Ooh. Um, so I just thought that was kind of interesting how you can have the same concept, the three fates, but you've got one group that sees it as maybe not so bad and mm. another that sees it as kind of a bummer. <laughs> so they take it on like a slightly sinister quality yep, with, yep, the, yep. with the Romans. That mm-hmm. is interesting. Do you know if so in Snow White, you know, the mm-hmm. witch and she's spinning. When, when, now I'm like, when is the there a spinning, spinning. wheel in uh, Snow White? Now, now you're going to have to do research after this. Because I, I'm, all I'm thinking of is Sleeping Beauty with the spinning wheel in that. Maybe, wait, maybe it's Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty has a spinning wheel because that's what she pricks her finger on that sends yes. her into... Okay. Uh, Disney uh, confusion. Sorry, Disney yes. Confusion. That's why I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, uh, Sleeping Beauty has the spinning wheel. That is interesting. I mean, maybe there is some sort of connection there um, with just that idea of thread and life and being somehow connected. Yep. I feel like spinning wheels do come up a lot lot in fairy tales and I don't yes. know if it's just like you know when they were written that it was just more of a facet of life than yeah. they are now I'm not yeah. sure uh, and then that also because I was like thinking 
deep about this connects to the <laughs> idea of, of a spinster, which is uh, this term that we have only for women that never yeah. marry, um, relates to spinning on the wheel. Like it's like, Oh, you don't have a, right. a partner. So you're just going to do this, but we don't have an equivalent term for men. I mean, I guess it's what bachelor. Yeah. I mean, you know, you so say, it's kind of interesting to think about, but how, there's nothing derogatory about bachelor. Right. But we're a spinster. Yeah. It, it is negative. Yeah, totally. um, but within, but that, word itself literally comes from this hmm. spinning thing and the attachment there. I also saw in um, a lot of pagan traditions, Gaelic traditions, similar connections between this thread being representative of, you know, it, that thread can be cut at any point and that it ends your life. Yeah. Yeah. I know that like the, the three fates definitely kind of seems to transcend a lot of cultures. Yeah. I, I know they have, um, sort of a Norse, mm-hmm. um, equivalent to, mm-hmm. um, like the Norns, um, who mostly I just know about from like, uh, the ring cycle, <laughs> like they appear in the, in the, in the <laughs> final opera <laughs> and then, uh, go to Demerung. Like mm-hmm. that's the beginning or the three, uh, Norns who are kind of like the fates and they're doing a similar like weaving thing too. That's mm-hmm. also involves spinning thread and yarn and stuff. So it, it, there's a lot of like, it, it seems to be this idea that is gone across a lot of cultures. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, like, and even if you think about like the idea of, I, I can't help but make connections with like Macbeth and like mm-hmm. the three witches, mm-hmm. like this like idea of like three ladies out there who yes. are kind of like puppet masters yep. of things. It's, it's just this like big idea that crosses into a lot of different cultures. Yeah. So. Now I have a question for you. So this painting is massive. It's real big. When this, and this was done <laughs> in 1667. Yeah. Where, where was this being put? Because this wasn't oh my gosh. like, was this in a castle type I mean, people's that would houses be my were too best small. Guess, yeah. I mean, obviously, if you are um, painting this for somebody, they are a person of means, wealthy. <laughs> you know, the the fact that you can uh, you, you both commission a work this large, yeah. which is going to cost a lot of money because it's so much work to make it, and then obviously having the space for it. Now, the frame on this thing, the frame is black and gold and it's huge and what's unique about this frame is there's like actual 3d i guess wooden carvings of and there's all kinds of symbols in the actual carvings now is this frame original to the painting i knew you were gonna ask me that and (laughs) i have no idea i mean i'll go peek at it right now just and see if i find any more information yeah (laughs) so uh i got up and read the label and (laughs) And we were pleasantly surprised to find i was surprised that it says the 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 this frame was the original and was created specifically for this painting which like i said you know I don't know how it, <laughs> no matter what frame was up there, was going to be created for this. Yeah. It's just, you don't know if it was created. We often wouldn't know if it was made with the original or not, but in this case, it was the original, which is kind of cool. So cool. The fact that this frame was made in 1667 and it's like covered in these three dimensional carvings that are obviously symbolic. I see like the, it looks like a sacred heart, but it's got the flag in there, the sword, and there's all this symbolism that, there's the fig leaves it looks like is connecting to some of the broader themes that yeah. are in the painting. Um, but wow, that's amazing. Somebody hand carved these things in 1667 and we're sitting here looking at it right now. I know. It's amazing. It's crazy. So when I looked at the label, uh, I also saw that uh, something I had forgotten about this piece, uh, mm-hmm. which is that it actually was made to commemorate the death of Pope Alexander. Oh. 
So it, see, there's how much art happened <laughs> because somebody died right. and we needed to like acknowledge that. So it's an interesting, but like, I'm going to make this piece about the death of another Alexander to commemorate, <laughs> to commemorate the <laughs> death of the Pope. Yeah. And it is, again, interesting to, to, to make such a secular artwork for the death of a for Pope. For the Pope, right? right? Because there's no, I don't see a crucifix or anything in here. Yeah. You know, the typical... And again, we were talking about the kind of quasi-religious way that some of the characters the, are handled. Like, it seems to sort of yeah. borrow from the language of Christianity in, in certain aspects. Are there people that are experts in frames? I'm sure there are. Like, but, that that's what they specialize um, in? I'm sure like there are. Their, people, I mean, like, or sort of who are <laughs> all into, like, historical framing. Yeah. I'm sure there's, like, a whole world of that. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are frame dealers and people yeah. who hunt for that stuff and, and try to find historical frames. Like, yeah. absolutely. And, I mean, frames can be worth a lot of money in and of themselves. So yeah. I'm sure well, it's, it's a good like business. Well, it's like with um, coffin makers. Mm. Um, originally, coffin makers... That, that was just an extension of people that were cabinet makers and furniture makers in town. Mm. And they would put in their little ads that they were available on short notice. And that's how you knew that they would make coffins. But there was really nobody that was like, I'm obsessed with coffins and that's what I make. They were always furniture makers that then this, this was like an easy add on basically. Yeah. Um, and it's frames are woodworking, you know what I mean? So it's, these had to, come from specific people yeah, that had yeah. this, exp- I don't know. So well, you have set me up with a perfect segue. So let's move on to our okay. next piece because <laughs> that is a great place uh, to move on. We're in Gallery 203, and everything in here is Spanish, um, and a lot of it is um, medieval art. So we have this kind of area that sort of looks like a little chapel because a lot of these um, are murals that came, they're frescoes that came from a chapel. Uh, in Spain. So on the walls, you'll see the areas that are kind of behind the plexiglass up there are mm-hmm. the original uh, murals. Wow. And then some of it has, you know, been painted to look like you're in an old chapel. So it's a spooky space. Um, yeah. This is one of the haunted areas of the museum. We've oh. uh, talked about in our first ghost tour. We visit this. And uh, okay. yeah, this is a, where guards have reported seeing like sort of monk-like hooded figures and things. Interesting. What do you think that they're attached to? I don't, what I mean, is the object that's keeping them here? I mean, I guess it would. I mean, the really the it would have to be the the murals themselves or, mm-hmm. or this guy. There's really nothing uh, else. Here. I mean, the retablo over here is another altarpiece mm-hmm. that's behind us um, uh, or to the side of us when you come in. I'm, that was not in here for a while. So <laughs> I guess it's been coming gone. So, you know, I'm not sure um, which, which piece you would think is particularly haunted, but yeah. I think this space lends itself to spookiness. It, it is. I mean, you can, I don't, I'm sure you can even hear in the recording the echoiness of it. Yeah. Like, it's just got a feeling of it that's like, it feels old and spooky. And well, so. it's kind of like when you walk into a beautiful church or a cathedral and you're like, man, I better be on my best behavior because <laughs> it feels like that's what I need to be doing here. <laughs> yeah. But then also, I think it's probably that feeling when you come in and you see this uh, carving here, this effigy um, that is from a casket and is clearly sort of part of, you know, 
a funeral practice or something yep. that mm-hmm. sort of also sets the spooky tone for people probably mm-hmm. as well. Um, it's the tomb effigy of Don Sancho Saiz Carillo. I didn't take Spanish, so I hope that's pretty good. <laughs> um, and uh, this is from around 1300. Uh, so it's pretty, pretty old. <laughs> yeah. And you can tell there's remnants of this piece was obviously gilded and painted. And, yeah. you know, that's all most of it's long gone, but you can see the intricacies of the carving. Um, do you know what kind of wood this is made out of? Oh, let's look over here. It might tell us. Because certain types of wood were poplar. used in... Oh, poplar. Mm-hmm. Okay. Used and favored for death-related things. Interesting. Um, particularly the yew tree, oh, Y-E-W. Okay. That's mm-hmm. got long, long, long connection to death and dying. That's why a lot of um, churchyards, which is the term for a graveyard next to a church, yeah. they usually have yew trees in them. And the oh. idea was that the yew tree itself would help the spirits of the dead get to the underworld. It's like... That word that we've talked about, psychopomp. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, uh, my, my new uh, party, a cocktail party uh, trivia word. <laughs> psychopomp. So a psychopomp is somebody who, it's like a deity, and they were it's across cultures, different religious traditions. Basically, every culture has one. The Grim Reaper is a psychopomp, and a psychopomp doesn't judge you. They just help your soul get to where it needs to go. Um, so the Egyptian psychopomp is Anubis. Um, the Greek ferryman, Sharon. I think I'm assuming I'm saying that right. Um, the Roman god Mercury was a psychopomp. Um, the Norse tradition, Valkyries, um, Shiva, Vishnu, Yama, they had messengers that would do that as well. So, um, psychopomp. I never would think about the Valkyries as, uh, as a psychopomp, but yeah, that's totally... Totally fits, right? Since I, I, I keep bringing up Wagner, that's what, you know, like when you hear right of the Valkyries uh, from Die Valkyra, that uh, is the introduction of the Valkyries as they come into take the bodies of the soldiers yep. back to Valhalla. Yes. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's true. I never even think about that as, like, they're basically the Grim Reaper, yeah. like, showing up. That's so and crazy. as I'm, we're talking about psychopomps here, and we're looking at this um, carving out of wood here, and this is Spanish, mm-hmm. I don't have a listing here for what the Spanish equivalent, because usually, there, like, there would have been a deity or something that was associated with that. And usually if somebody had... You know, not not everybody got this treatment. Not right. not everybody had these life size carvings made that depicted who they were. Um, I don't know who is the Spanish equivalent, like psychopomp. I mean, I guess in it, Spain. that kind of leads me though just to like who is the Christian psychopomp? Like, I mean, because really, well, we're like just in Judaism, about... we have the angel of death. Okay. That's a psychopomp. Yeah. Um, angels. Yeah, I, think, I guess it's really would be, just would be kind of. I, I mean, I feel like yeah, that's probably true. Like, I guess we're just dealing with Christianity in general. So I don't. Yeah. yeah. And then in a lot of like indigenous traditions, um, shamans are psychopomps, right? Because they help the souls get to where they need to go. So now, so, now I want to look 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 into that because um, knowing about psychopomps helps frame your understanding of death and dying across times and cultures because Hmm. when you understand that someone is being buried here someone is being memorialized it helps always to have that broader context to know who 
these like little characters that people were expecting to be involved and to be around at the same time. Um, And from a sort of psychological perspective or like how we know people deal with grief, knowing about things like psychopomps help us process loss. It gives it more meaning. It helps give a sense of stability when grief is a destabilizing event. It's sort of like your whole life gets turned upside down when someone dies, but if you can know that the angel of death is coming, right. you know, and the angel of death came from my parents and their parents and their parents before them, it brings the stabilizing influence. And that's one of the theories for why these concepts have survived. Hmm. Yeah. Now, now you've got me wondering, like, where does the Grim Reaper come from? Yeah, because see, to me, the Grim, Grim Reaper is like a pop culture thing. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, but, but from I, it's not. It, it, it didn't start have, there. It, it didn't has start to have some there. like real beginning, right? Yeah, and the Grim Reaper is that doesn't judge you right. as being good or bad. Grim Reaper is like, hey, time to go. <laughs> <laughs> But I wonder if the Grim Reaper is just kind of inspired by artists' version of the Angel of Death. Yeah. Of like, I wouldn't, that would make total sense. You know, like uh, popular versions of how is death often represented in tarot cards? Yeah, so in on the death card, the Grim Reaper is often used. Um, in tarot, the death card is the 13th card. Mm-hmm. It's attached to number 13. And it's usually represented by the Grim Reaper or an entity that we would associate as that a psychopomp, but the death card in tarot is not actually about you're going to die. It's more that something has ended or what has died that you're not letting go of. But I mean, that kind of is a good question, um, that a lot of grief therapists and counselors will work with people. Like, let's say that so-and-so died a year ago, Mm -hmm. but you are just, you've been unable to really move forward. And so the question then is, why are you not putting this to rest in a way that will allow you to move forward? Interesting. Now, now I keep thinking about like, what is like, what, when does tarot even emerge? Like when does 1445? Okay. Around then. Um, and it was called Taroki, T-A-R-O-C-C-H-I, um, Italian, more like a game. And then, um, I actually just went and saw the largest, oldest, most complete tarot deck in June of this year at the Morgan Library Museum in New York. Mm. Um, Tarot cards, these decks, were commissioned by wealthy families, the same people who'd be commissioning a lot of the paintings and stuff that are in here. Um, It was so neat to be able to see these little artist pieces, these tarot cards painted by hand, gilded, just like this thing that we're looking at and all the paintings in here. And you can see the usage where people's thumbs would Mm. rub off parts of the cards and they would use the cards to just help make sense of life Mm -hmm. because part of the challenge of being a person is coming to terms with the fact that you may think that you've got things planned out and you know what to expect, but at any moment, like the three fates tell us, you know, someone can cut that thread, right? Yeah. Um, And that is where struggle and suffering comes from when things don't go a way that we think that they're going to go. And that's why we have all these things created across time and across culture to help us navigate and get through difficult moments in all of our lives. That is what makes us human. Hmm. I'm now wondering, like, I feel like I want to go back and, like, do more research now on on sort of that time period, too, and just to kind of wonder of, like, does this connect with things like 
the type of people who would be collecting bodies and things like that? Like, what was the typical, like, what did a person wear in that sort of, like, what Mm -hmm. was the uniform of that person? Does that, is it like related in some way to sort of the way we represent the Grim Reaper as like a person who comes and literally collects the dead, but then given a sort of supernatural twist or something? Yeah. It's kind of an interesting, hmm. Yeah. I want to go do some research on um, this. To jump back into the psychopomp thing, you, yeah. have you ever heard people say like, uh, like people have deathbed visions and they see yeah. like the people who they knew in real life but had died before them, mm-hmm. they were like waiting to come get them. Those are psychopomps. So mm. the other piece of this is that you too can be a psychopomp <laughs> one day. You know what I mean? Um, which is kind of a nice little concept and I love so October in America it's Halloween like we like to feel spooky and get like spooked out then next month we like to be thankful and then the month after like that we like to give and receive gifts okay yeah in October I've never really been into like the let's get creeped out spooky thing to me October is like the best month for meaning and for like taking stock of Mm. what you have and um Death for a lot of people is what makes us appreciate what we have. It's like you grow up, you're a teenager, and then in your early 20s, somebody dies. That's your first experience with death. And that's the moment when you realize, whoa, life is short. I need to Mm. get it together. It's because of death that many of us find our purpose. We find meaning. We find clarity because of that, because of this terrible, horrible thing. So it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition. And we humans have created all kinds of things to help us navigate it, like psychopomps and like this casket topper that we're looking at essentially. (laughs) Well, I I think that that's like a lot of, I don't know. I've always sort of, I I was thinking about this recently and and just with Halloween and the, the sort of weirdness of, it as a holiday yeah. and that like it is this moment where we all sort of like celebrate the macabre and yeah. like and they're all like let's make our houses look like trash I but the that. rest of the year we're trying <laughs> to like increase the equity in our homes but no in October let's make it look like we haven't taken care of it like in 15 years <laughs> that it's like actively dangerous place yeah. to go like yeah. I, I've always loved that about like Halloween I think <laughs> it's it's sort of maybe part, part of my love of it has been uh, I realized the same thing about people decorating is that it's it's a moment where like you actively exercise bad taste in a way yeah yeah you know like you sort of practice like i'm going to do like i know what looks good and i'm going to do the opposite of that and i love that um and then i will post a picture onto facebook and i will expect all of you to like it and tell me how great it looks yeah (laughs) but i also think there is something probably actually deeper in all of that that is like how we kind of work our way through that Mm -hmm. or sort of laugh at the horror or laugh at the horror of death and, and, and all of that. And I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm really into horror movies and we just had a horror uh, film fest here okay, where yeah. we showed three films all around vampires. And, you know, one of my thoughts was like, I kind of knew that some people would be like, why is the art museum showing horror movies? Like in, in that there's this sort of, since always that horror is like low art mm-hmm. and beneath us and I I just don't really think it is, and I think it's actually usually sometimes maybe subconsciously, sometimes consciously on the part of the creators, but is dealing with, like, our cultural fears. Yes, I think it helps us make sense of 
important aspects of yes. our culture and of our humanity. And I think that like, we also have to keep in mind that the month of October in 2019, death is in some ways as common as it was before, but in some ways it's not. Like for example, my great grandparents' generation, the, one of my great grandparents had 10 children of which only four survived to adulthood. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, it's theorized that our deal with Halloween, at least here in the U.S., is like it's kind of a way for us to take control of something that we ultimately don't have control of, right? right? And it kind of gives us a stabilizing effect. Like, we're all talking about death in the month of October, and we're all okay with it right now, and we all feel like we have control. Yeah. Have you seen Midsummer yet? No. Oh, my gosh. I don't like scary movies. I don't like upsetting movies. (laughs) Well, says the person who deals with death all day. It is kind of upsetting. So I don't know <laughs> if I would recommend it other than like, I think it is another, it is a movie that it just came out this last summer and I think it's just now out. Like you can. I heard it's like very creepy. Yes. Or unsettling. It def- I mean, it's every, I mean, yeah, like I'm, mm-hmm. it, this is not a movie I'm going to lightly recommend because yeah. I would say like, if you are not like a person who can handle that sort of thing um, and I, I wouldn't recommend it, but it's, it's, a movie that ultimately is about grief. And that's why I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, you should see it because it is ultimately about a person um, who, for whom traditional society has failed them in the way that it has given them no real way to grieve, like a really terrible loss. And then they have gone to a place that is this sort of crazy, you know, community, but it is actually giving them a way to grieve and a sense of community in that moment. And Which it's, is what helps you move through grief is community. Yeah. So the whole movie is really ultimately about a person overcoming grief in, in the guise of a horror movie. And yeah. it's, it's really fascinating. So while I, you know, it sounds like you probably wouldn't enjoy it. <laughs> so, but you know, you're not the first person to tell me I need to watch that. So, um, but, but you yeah. raised a point that made me think about this guy here, our little friend that we're looking at, he, imagine how you would feel knowing that, let's say that you have a loved one that died, but your family doesn't have the wealth to be able to commission a life-size carving to memorialize your loved one. You know, like how did that feel for people then? I mean, even today. I was going to say, I don't think it's so much different. So, I don't, I, yeah, I was just like, <laughs> I don't even think today. I, could do, I don't think I could fund a life sco- life-size sculpture mm-hmm. of anyone right now. So Yeah, uh. but <laughs> I just wonder what it was like then. And um, did people really think that other people were set apart or was it something where the poor people knew, well, it's just because they have money. They just have dollars, but we're no different. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it also just comes down to like, it, it, what that makes me think of is, is also like when you have the money to do this, like how different were the medieval Spanish from the Egyptians in a way of yeah. like sort of, it, it's like... You, they don't literally believe in the same kind of afterlife and the same maybe sort of literalism of like, mm-hmm. I'm going to take these things with me. Mm-hmm. But then there's something about it that's like, this is a way of being remembered. Um, yeah. And of feeling like you're not really going to be dead because right. you're leaving behind this life-size 
replica of you. And like, hey, it worked. Mm-hmm. It worked for old uh, Don Sancho. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because we, we yeah. got his name on a wall right now and like we're talking about him. So good for him. Um, I guess you can take it with you. That's right. Like, like <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that that's the difference. I mean, like all of the other people who lived in, you know, whatever town he lived in who died yep. and who didn't have sculptures made of them is like nobody's talking about them in a museum right now. Although the yeah. greatest, I think we maybe talked about this the last time, is like the mummy is like literally a person and, and it just is like, you know, unidentified male mummy. You person, know, like, yeah. Like we, so it's like we don't really know anything about them in yep. a sense, but yep. it's just like, well, he's here. Mm-hmm. And we have the tomb <laughs> of the unknown soldier. Oh, yeah. Right? So it's just interesting culturally how we have these exceptions to like like situations where it's normal to have dead people on display. Yeah. Where yeah. we're like, no, no, this is fine. Well, and in that case, I think that's a, like the idea of a tomb of an unknown soldier that, that like it represents something bigger. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like one body that represents like all lost in a war, right? Yes. Like it's, it's sort it, of this figurehead. And of, it reinforces the nobility of losing your life in that manner. And the sort of um, unknownness is what gives it the power yes. to the fact that people have figured out who it is uh-huh. and they've tried to keep it secret yes. because they don't want it out. Like who... Because there's something that's happening that's creating an effect that some people want right. and keeping it unknown. Yeah. When it becomes a named person, it does not represent everybody yeah. anymore. It represents yeah. that one person. So it's like it loses all of its strength yes. when you know who it is. Yes. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we should move on to yes. our next piece. Uh, we're getting chatty about these. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll have to look at my notes to figure out where we're going. Okay. <laughs> So now we are in the Asian galleries. Uh, This is kind of a long hallway gallery. This one is 139, though I feel like it's one of these where when you get down to the other side, it's actually 138, but it's all the same room. (laughs) So uh, this is uh, an actually a brand brand newish uh, acquisition for us. They just went on view. Uh, We I think the museum acquired them last year in 2018, Mm -hmm. Um, and they are just what's called a pair of funerary jars on the label. Um, But we kind of have been referring to them as soul jars. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a sort of common, like, you know, way people refer to these types of jars. And they're a type of funerary vase. Though, you know, as far as I can tell, I don't think they were ever meant to, like, actually hold like human remains or anything Mm -mm, like that's not like when you hear funerary vase I think people think of like an urn or something but that's not really what this was Mm -mm. about Mm -mm. and what I uh, one of the things when I kind of brought up pointing bringing this to you what I thought was interesting is that they come in a pair which I think reflects this very um, you know Taoist idea of yin and yang which I think is a little bit different than a lot of the other sort of western takes on death that we look at um, because it's sort of interesting to think of something as not being just one, you know, like Mm -hmm. this represents, you know, Don Sanchez or whatever, like here is the one (laughs) sculpture of him, but like that there are two uh, sort of vessels, one representing yen, one representing yang, Mm -hmm. sort of having male, female, having sort of, uh, one is the primary creatures on them will be dragons, one is tigers. Mm -hmm. Um, So they, they represent that kind of hot and cold 
yeah. essentially of a person or of everything of life. And I think that's really, really fascinating. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's inappropriate that I keep hearing in my head every time I was looking up information about soul jars is I'd go, soldier boy, tell him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I keep thinking about like, soldier boy. <laughs> I just keep thinking like, soldier, <laughs> like soul train. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that said, um, what's interesting about, Eastern traditions and perspectives on death, and particularly the Chinese, is they have a view, that, at least the ancient Chinese, that um, death itself was like polluting. So it's the juxtaposition of clean and unclean. Oh. Okay? So if we frame that in this context, then the body is like unclean. Hmm. And then therefore the soul is clean. Interesting. And then we have duality represented elsewhere. Like... Um, we talked earlier about the reward punishment way that afterlife is often depicted. If you were good, you go to heaven. If you were bad, you go to hell. And there's like literally no room for gray area. So I think it's interesting that we've got two of these here. Um, now you had touched on how these do not hold right. like cremated remains or body parts. That is true. Um, the idea was just from my understanding is that they would sometimes put things inside of them. And the idea was it was for them to use in their afterlife, yeah. but not always. Yeah. I don't exactly have the full details and we they haven't been out very long. So, you know, yeah. we, we haven't written a lot about them, but you know, I know um, these are much, much older, but next door we have the like really ancient Chinese um, wine vessels. Huh. And those are also used as more of a, uh, ancestor worship um, mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. sort of the idea that these are wine vessels, but it's not like for you to have a party yeah. and pour wine out of. Is like we are pouring wine in this, and it is for our ancestors. So symbolic. Like, it's like what we do at Passover yeah. as Jews. Yes. Yeah. So yep. I think uh, that's that's true. Like that. That's pro that's kind of what I wondered if yeah they might be putting things in there uh, it, for the afterlife or now, as offerings. This acquisition here, both of these jars, were these from one family or for one person? So they see, I mean, they definitely look like they were made at the same time. Yeah. Um, I don't know, ex again, if they represent necessarily one distinct person. So I, I, again, I was trying to look for information and it was a little dodgy, but you can kind of see here on this, uh, that it says soul jars originated in the late third century when China experienced tragic episodes of continuous turbulence known as the turmoil of the Yongjia era. Um, and if you notice, though, the time here is like... It's only five years. Three, yeah, it's not that long. But I was like looking up, like, what is this? And apparently, um, basically, there was a lot of like political upheaval. And apparently, uh, around like 30,000 civilians were murdered. Okay, so bingo. Here we have it. This is yeah. what this is. There were that many people that died. There is no way that that society or neighborhood or town would have been able to support that many dead people at once. Right. And just like what we had here in the U.S. with the Civil War, that's when embalming was created. We had so many casualties. It, the struggle was, oh my gosh, how can we get these people back to their families? Yeah. And we couldn't always. But if you have a soul jar, this is a way to honor your loved one in a way that doesn't... Um, harm their soul or their chances at afterlife. Right. And these soul jars or funerary urns, these are predecessors to the urns that we use today in modern America. Um, I can tell you that when somebody dies and they choose cremation and the family's got to pick what to put them in, 
There's mm-hmm. a lot of thought and a lot of times a lot of money that goes into the vessel that's going to contain the remains of that person. Now, that's not a soul. That's actually the physical remains. But the idea is still there. A lot of times we choose modern day urns that represent qualities of the person or things we want them to have, like connection to God or being reunited with Jesus. So they put crucifixes and stuff on the outside. Um, But man, if there was that many deaths in a short period of time, see, then I'm wondering, did this exist before that? era. Well, so, so that's, what's interesting is that happened. If you look at the timeline, we're talking like 300. And then when these are actually oh. made is, is a, a, over, almost a thousand years, years later. later. So I feel like it is born out of that tradition okay. of these people who migrated away from this tragedy, yeah. um, but a way of kind of like honoring their dead. Interesting. And so I, that's my understanding. I could be wrong about yeah. this, but I, cause just trying to make sense of the timelines and things that was sort of like where I kind of came to is like, it makes a sort of sense of like, this probably is not tied to a specific person in a way of that. It is again, the idea of ancestors and people who maybe existed before thousands of years well, before you. And both of these are rung with little figurines of people. It looks like yeah, people. Yeah. So this is, this is really interesting. See, I'm really curious now about who these were for or what family they were for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, and they were given to us, um, you can see, uh, by uh, Bukong Kim, who's an artist, actually, who uh, has had art here. We mm-hmm. own some of her and um, their family. So, you know, I don't know how their family acquired that, but yeah. um, that's that's where they came from. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's an interesting piece. And, and again, I, I, the idea of the duality of it just mm-hmm. is interesting. And I, I think even if it's not probably meant to necessarily represent one individual, mm-hmm. the idea of having having the pair and that sort of seems to be a thing that that is common with all of these soldiers is that they come in pairs usually yep. um i just think that's a, a, again a different way of looking at death and life yep. <laughs> in general really yep. and that's uh, that's an interesting well idea. and after somebody dies one of the tasks of coming to terms with your loss is a lot of times we all have to reckon with the fact that, okay, this person died. Maybe you did not like them at all, mm. but your friend loved them. Mm. They had a completely different experience with the same person. Um, and that duality of how each of us lives our lives and we have good relationships with some people, we have bad relationships with others. There's something reflected in that concept of what mm. we deal with modern day that I see in these Jars, this idea that you can be one person but have these two completely different aspects. And then we live in duality. We have day, we have night. And the Eastern tradition weighs heavily on East and West as well, mm. and the opposites in directionality. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting yeah. just to think about. Um, the other thing in doing some digging I found is that soul jars are represented in some modern day video games. Oh, like what? It's, um, I think I wrote it down. You piqued my interest by saying the video game magic word, and I'm suddenly like, "Mm, yes? (laughs) Whenever we look at old stuff, I always want to know, like, well, what are we doing with this now? Yeah. Where did this trickle up and end up in modern day? Because what I have found, especially with death stuff, we don't let it go. We don't let stuff actually die. Like, these soul jars versus today's modern day urns that we stick people in. Mm -hmm. It's the same kind of idea. Um, but anyway, let me see if I wrote it down. 
Well, I can look it up later too. And if it, if, if there's something I know, I can always like uh, put it in a little coda or something. If there's yeah. something interesting there, you, it, you, all you have to do is be like, "It's in a video game, Russell." And I'm like, "Ooh, Ooh yeah, I'm much that more really interested. that really piqued your interest there." So I actually <laughs> just started playing this game uh, this weekend that I was actually thinking about you while I was playing. I was like, I "Was like, I wonder if she plays video games." Does it involve farming? Because if it does, I'm into it. No, and maybe it's like one of those things where it's like you know the you know, the shoemaker doesn't want to play a bit video game about making shoes so oh. maybe this would be like wildly <laughs> uninteresting to you but um it is so it's called return of the obra den oh. and it is it's a very strange game but it is basically you play as an insurance like man who from the east india trading company who's okay. going to this ghost ship that has like everyone has died on and your job is to look at the log of, uh, you know, everyone who's been on this ship and figure out what happened to them. Okay, see, I would be interested in this because it doesn't sound like you're getting murdered or, like, people are chasing you to kill you. No. So, okay. So what you have... I don't like that. So so you have a... The only tool you have is this book where you keep track of things in it and a pocket watch that is sort of a magic pocket watch that when you find a corpse, you oh. click it and it shows you the last, the exact moment of their death, yes, but this frozen. Is, oh my God. Oh my God. Another historical reference. In the Victorian era here in the U.S. and over in Europe, when somebody would die, you would stop all the clocks in the house at their time of death and you would leave it that way for a set period of time based upon what was socially acceptable. Interesting. And this sort of takes, I actually am not I was kind of looking to see if I could remember what time of year or what uh, time it takes place. And I want to say it's it feels like, you know, the 19th century, like, but like, I don't know like if old it's... times. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely, I would say, between the late 18th and, you know, 19th century, somewhere in there, when, when you know, East India trading was still yeah. a thing. Um, and, but so you uh, use these last moments and they're like frozen in 3D space, but you are able to walk around them and get clues to figure out. And you hear like usually about like a few seconds of audio before you're able to see that scene. So you're trying to connect how like somebody might say something and you have to remember like, okay, that person called out for this person and who okay, was see, in the scene and used, interesting to me. used deductive reasoning to yeah. try to like piece it all together. Um, but it is really fascinating because those moments are always based on exactly the moment when somebody died. And then those can be tricky because sometimes the moments when they died was not what caused the death. Like yeah. something happened to them earlier, but they, but they died later. So yeah. then you have to figure out, well, hopefully there was another dead body somewhere when that happened. And you're looking for clues to figure out what happened to this person. See, That's cool. See, I, yeah, I, that's kind of my speed of game there. Yeah. I don't like to be chased and people trying to murder me. No, that's not fun can, for me. <laughs> you can take your time because like there is no, there, right. There's no like, there's never threat to you. Yeah. Like the player, you are only able to sort of walk around these frozen scenes of other that's people's so cool. deaths. That's so cool. <laughs> um, and, uh, and the other thing I didn't mention that's like kind of really amazing about it is it's all like a 3d game, but it is rendered as if it were like a Mac 
game from the like eighties. Oh, so cool. everything is black and white <laughs> okay. and, um, okay. and sort of like line art and then like the sort of dithering to, to create the, yeah. the grayscale. And it's really interesting looking because it, it has this weird feeling of past and future. It's like, where is this in time? Like it's a really cool. strange game. So for someone who really just plays my N64 and Harvest Noon, it will be familiar a little bit. I think, yeah, <laughs> I think you could probably, I think somebody who doesn't like play a lot of games could find their way around yeah. it even though i know like it is mm-hmm. essentially a first person game so mm-hmm. you are walking around in 3d space that can throw a lot of people but other than that like i said you have your time to like look and you're never like there's nothing you don't have to be quick reflexes or anything and it's more it's more of a like a detective thing where you're thinking trying to it. like yeah it's it's it requires a lot of really clever thinking and 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 sometimes like that's cool i I feel like games are so much smarter now. Like just the fact that I found a reference for these soul jars in a modern day video game. Like these game designers are researching oh, stuff. Totally. You know what I mean? It's a, that's way different than when I was a kid. I but, was, you know, yeah, I was playing. Uh, like when I was playing Uncharted Four, there was. I remember I was creeping through somebody's house who was like a like an old art collector or something. Yeah. And I was like looking at the stuff in this like person's attic or something. I was like, Oh, that's an, an Amarna period Egyptian vase that looks like something from <laughs> yeah. our collection. Like it wasn't just like a token, like Egyptian vase. Like I could pinpoint it to like, Oh, that's Amarna. Like that's that specific looking style of Egyptian. That's vase. incredible. So like, yeah, like the kind of detail mm-hmm. I'm always obsessed with that. I've actually wanted to do an episode sometimes with, um, with one of our curators to show them like, sort of fake decorative arts that are yeah. made because there's so many things that are like jugs and, you know, mm-hmm. like the, mm-hmm. the, the things yeah. that, that just like occupy space. And it's like the same idea of like making decorative arts, but like in a, a totally digital world where these things only exist in yeah. this fictional world. But somebody also did put a lot of time and care into digitally making this yeah. thing. Do you think that video games are actually a great opportunity for education about the arts? Yeah, I mean, it could be. Like, I don't know, like, if anyone wants to play, like, art history adventure. Yeah, (laughs) but, like, if you weave things in subtly or something, I just, like... I don't know. Like, I guess I feel like it's probably more that just like any other field, those people who are making them are coming to it clearly with, like, that background, and then they are putting it into that. And if you understand that, you get a greater appreciation of it. Mm-hmm. Like it could be, I don't know if that would be fun. <laughs> right? yeah. like, or like how to make that fun. <laughs> right. Like yeah. maybe there's something there. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's great when that stuff is informing it. You know, when I mm-hmm. look at, and, and when people don't do a good job of it, I notice you it, you tell. know, like I was watching, um, I can't remember if it was Victoria or the crown. I think it was uh-huh. Victoria, uh-huh. but I think both shows are a little guilty of this and like um you know a lot of the production designers they will use actual paintings um and then they'll like just print them and you know frame them and put them up actually one of our paintings was in the crown like they didn't tell us Um, it it was in one of the it's uh one of the portraits of two children in our British galleries okay. and it was like hanging over the crib uh, in the cr- uh, in the crown when they had like they were spending a lot of time in the nursery I think Interesting. And, uh, yeah so um, but I was watching I think it was I'm sure it was Victoria and there was a sort of like portrait of probably a royal or somebody um, but I think the production team had designed like decided like, well, this painting needs to look really big because I want it to fill the frame or something. You know, they yeah. had this sort of idea, but you don't see portraits like that 
like really giant. Huge. Like, like generally, if you think of like even that painting we were looking at today, everybody was essentially like life size. Yeah. And anytime you go too much bigger, it feels a little weird. And so yeah. in those sort of portraits of people, if they're really a big painting, it's usually a full scale portrait of yes. somebody. So yes. you see them head to toe yep. if it's like, and then if it's a, just a head and shoulders kind of portrait, it's usually roughly the size of a head and shoulders. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go that big. And this was like printed at a scale that was so, that was so to yeah. my just instincts looked very weird. I was mm-hmm. like, I've never seen a painting from that time period that, that big, way, you know, like it's a thing that you would happen in the 20th century or later. Yeah, that, I was gonna say, that sounds like something a modern day artist would be doing is right. playing with the scale. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's like not uncommon or like even, you know, photographers, that's a thing that was like popular in like the early two thousands or something is mm-hmm. like, we're going to make this like, re- like huge face, like a giant <laughs> head. That's like yeah. a photograph. That's like, in really crystal clear detail so you can see every blemish and problem uh-huh. with this person and we'll print it uncomfortably large because we now like have the technology to do that yeah. as well. But yeah, it's just like that that look of like a giant painting looked weird to me. Again, I'm not a total expert on this, but I'm like, I spend enough time around old paintings that yeah, I feel yeah. like, you know, <laughs> might be like, that looks weird. That's like, that's yeah. not right, you know. But uh, so in that case, there was something where I was like, I wish they had maybe been a little more accurate, but that's also a very specific complaint to a person who works in an art museum. And I'm sure (laughs) the rest of the public is like, it's great. I love it. It's a big painting. Sure. Yeah. I think my equivalent (laughs) as a thanatologist would probably be Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages. People think that her five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance are like the order that you go in grief, but she actually developed that based on observing people that are dying themselves. Mm. Like if I find out that I'm dying, I would tend to follow these Mm -hmm. stages. They weren't, it wasn't for grieving people, Hmm. but for some reason, culturally in the U S we've like picked this up and been like, this is how you grieve, but really that's Hmm. not how you grieve. And so that's the equivalent. So anytime I see these references in movies and things Mm. where they're like, Oh, it's the five stages. I'm like, no, <laughs> I, I feel like another. Okay, now I'm on the like things that bother me in pop culture. Yeah, that, I that love were, like, complaining. Totally so. off topic. <laughs> this is another one that I think is really funny. Is basically if you watch any movie, like there aren't really a lot of movies that take place in like the art world, mm-hmm. so it's really not like there's a lot to complain about. But I feel like <laughs> anytime somebody has a story to tell about art, it's yeah. usually some variation on the Emperor's New Clothes, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's usually about this thing is garbage and everybody loves it because they're so like, they don't want to be the idiot who says the wrong thing. Yeah. And my experience of people in the art world is usually they hate everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. They don't hate everything, but it's like the, 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 it is rare that like, it's so funny that like, a, for instance, a curator in a movie is always like, did you see the latest blah, 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 blah. It's genius. Like everybody always is declaring everything is a genius. What? In a movie. They don't really talk like that. And I feel like in general, it's like when they think something is good, it's like kind of the rarity to yeah. like, oh, I really love this because it rises above everything else, which I think mm-hmm. is either just like, okay, or not so okay. Mm-hmm. So it's like, 
it's just so funny that that is the story that is always told about art and art people. It just repeated, and it's like, like this accepted trope. Yeah, yeah. Of like, actually, to bring it back to horror, uh, this movie that came out recently on Netflix, The Velvet Buzzsaw. Okay. Oh, okay. Which Ooh. is a horror movie about the art world, which I was very excited oh, about because okay. I like both of these things. <laughs> but it, it kind of has a lot of that of people like. Did you see the newest Damien blah, 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 blah piece? It was amazing. Like, everybody's, like, <laughs> loves everything. And, like, nobody has any, like, sort of snarky, like, no. nobody hates anything. And I'm just like, that's not very that realistic. That's not accurate. Yeah. I feel like every, so there's always somebody who's like, oh, I thought it was garbage. Uh, uh, you that's know. funny. So, anyway. So, okay, like, with the crown using the piece that is in your collection here, yeah. what are people supposed to do? Because you guys own that. Yeah. And, like, you know, you can't come in here and take... Picture, high resolution pictures of stuff, right? Like you're not even supposed to take pictures, right? Oh, uh, you can take pictures in here. Um, you can like uh, so in, for instance, like this label doesn't have any sort of no photo. Yeah, um, some some pieces will have some that. do. Um, and so if you know if if it says it's if it there's, if we're not telling you it's not okay, and especially yeah. like special exhibits, we'll, yep. we'll, uh, especially things that are on loan and things we don't own, uh, a lot of times you definitely can't take pictures of those. Um, sometimes we might own the work, but we don't own the copyright um, or the reproduction rights for it. So, like, we own this work, but the artist uh, is still alive. I see. So they own the reproduction rights to their own artwork. Or sometimes they're dead, but their family owns the rights or their estate or blah, blah, blah. So um, a lot of work is protected for so many years after their death or yep. then is protected by the estate. And, uh, and then at a certain point, the copyrights kind of go up in the air and, yeah. and come to us or, you know, so it, it just, uh, it depends. It depends. On the piece. Yeah. I mean, with something like that, the piece they were dealing with, it wasn't a piece we would have said you could not photograph. Yeah. But ideally we would have probably loved if like, they had given us like a been, been aware of it or something. <laughs> yeah. So that's, right. that's interesting. Cause I, and just I think, think we would have been, we would have had more problem if they were like selling prints of it yeah. and you know, not crediting us or, you know, like yeah. that would be more of an issue than it's this thing that's appearing in the background of a, of an image, you know, that if they didn't use ours, they could have used anybody else's. Anybody's, yeah. And honestly, we were probably happy to get to talk about it on, on social media. I for was going to say, that's a great like talking point. <laughs> right. You know, so. We're happy to ride the coattails of, of Netflix in yeah, that instance. Yeah. Like we have way more to gain from them. Got a that, claim to fame there. Right, like, <laughs> we have more to gain from that moment, honestly, than they do. It yeah. still would be nice, but I'm sure they don't, are not in the habit of contacting anyone yeah. they print. <laughs> they probably don't. They probably just look through books. Mm-hmm. They probably have a, a, a catalog of, you know, art and they're just like, Oh, okay, look, this is a great image or, you know, they know what the time this period is. This yeah. fits. They, they looked at the details and made sure, Oh, the artist and the time period and all of it makes sense to be yeah. here. Um, so <laughs> it's all checks out there, but you know, not too worried about where, it, who owns the work or anything like that. Yeah. Most people don't, don't even realize that's a thing. Yeah, most people don't realize it is as complicated as it is, yeah. too, especially where it's like when it gets to those like photo rights and things where yeah. people kind of go like, well, isn't it yours? Like, this parallels yeah. cemeteries. Like you ever see those big mausoleums? Mm. So let's say that your great-great-grandparents bought a mausoleum and there's six spots and they're all full. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like cemetery law is older than all basically other laws hmm. we have in the U.S. It's older than zoning laws, all that. Um, and so... But sometimes the person who technically owns the mausoleum might be like a great, great, great 
grandchild or if there were no heirs, it's like a cousin or something weird. And so, um, there's some family conflicts that, that go on where you might have 87 descendants who all have an equal claim hmm. to the property, right. but they won't agree on... That's why sometimes you'll see mausoleums that have chains on the doors and why some mausoleums, you can go into them. Hmm. A lot of times it has to do with family conflict. Weird. Yeah. I never thought about that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So. Well, thank you for bringing our episode back to actually being about the topic. Death? Yeah. So, well, and I thought I have a few Halloween jokes to end on. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Okay. What is a mummy's favorite music? I don't know. What? Rap. <laughs> I know that was a good one. Okay. This is my favorite. Why did the ghost call a taxi? Um, I don't know why. Because he was sheet faced. <laughs> I know, that's a good one, too. And then finally, why do cemeteries have fences around them? Uh, people are dying to get in. Yes, you got it. <laughs> yes. That's an old one. People are dying now. <laughs> but I figured the cemetery tie-in would be good. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us again, Cole. Thanks for having me. It's great to be your unofficial yes. thanatologist. Yes, I know you are now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions include The Levy, a photographer in the American South, Women Breaking Boundaries, and Treasures of the Spanish World. Join us on Thursday, October 31st from 6 to 7.30 p.m. for a special Halloween edition of Fine Art Flow. You'll explore art through yoga during this 30-minute gallery talk and 60-minute yoga class. This evening, we will share spooky stories from Cam's haunted past. For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and also join our Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Ofrande Musicale by Bacalao. And as always, please rate and review us to help others find the show. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum.